This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress is on recess this week, which may be a good thing with COVID making its ugly appearance in both chambers. And that's why maybe a $10 billion COVID package will be high on the agenda when members return. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And let's talk about that COVID. It's back on the Hill. At least one senator and, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. That's right. In fact, several lawmakers late last week announced that they had COVID. And of course, the fact that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she had it really right before she was about to hold a news conference uh, surprised a lot of people. Even though it's been out there for a while, you're seeing more people wearing masks and doing that type of thing around here at the Capitol. But again, it reminds people that it is not gone. And so lawmakers, when they do get back, they're going to have to tackle this big $10 billion funding plan for COVID. They had hoped that Congress would approve it before the break, but since that didn't happen, they're going to have to take it up on their return. Now, you'll remember the White House originally proposed more than $22 billion. Republicans balked at that, arguing, among other things, that previously approved money had not been spent. But while they've brought it down to $10 billion, there's still another unrelated issue. Senate Republicans are upset about the White House's plans to drop Title 42, which allows for migrants to be sent back at the border. That was established during the Trump administration, and Senate Republicans want a vote on an amendment to reinstate it. So even if they can work that out when they get back, there's still issues within the COVID package itself. They could be problematic. Once approved by the Senate, this would have to go to the House, and many Democrats there are not happy that the package, first of all, has been scaled back so much, and that it doesn't include services for COVID uninsured people, as well as a global vaccination campaign. So while the country and Congress wanted to be done with COVID at this point, it's clearly back. Right. So, well, I wanted to ask you more about the international aspect of this. They want to appropriate money for the United States to vaccinate the world or to ship vaccinations overseas? Essentially, yes, because the argument is that if you only take care of it in the United States and it continues to spread in other countries, it's going to remain a problem and then it'll eventually get back here. Now, Republicans have been pushing back on a lot of these proposals saying there's money still in the uh, system that needs to be spent, that you're taking money that really doesn't need to be spent at this point. So I think we're going to see a lot of give and take still on this issue. I think that the Democrats thought that they could get it through fairly quickly initially, and there was a lot of pushback, especially on programs like the one you just mentioned. And then when they return, it's looking like you're reporting that the defense budget is going to get a fresh look over. That is to say the request by the Biden administration for fiscal 2023 in light of what's going on in Russia. Absolutely. In connection with Ukraine, this has really caused the defense budget, I think, to get under the microscope even more. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about what kind of equipment can still be sent over. But then there's also an argument over inflation. Of course, that's looming large as we head toward the midterm election. But whether or not the $773 billion proposed by the Biden administration will be enough. And during some House Armed Services and Senate Armed Services Committee hearings last week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley were pressed about this, whether or not they are going to actually have enough money, particularly uh, from Republicans who argue that since the budget was proposed before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that the Pentagon could be in danger of being shortchanged. They pointed out during some of these hearings that inflation is well over 5%, some say as high as 8%, while DOD assumed the inflation rate was just over 2% when it developed the budget. Austin has said it's a robust budget. 
I was also on a call with other reporters with Virginia Senator Mark Warner last week, and he was asked about this. And he noted there's, of course, always this tug of war over defense funding. Just one example, there's concern in Norfolk, Virginia, about the decommissioning of ships. But ultimately, he thinks this will be worked out. We're in the very early stages of this. But clearly, they are going to be going over this line by line through the defense budget, even more so than they often do. And also, with many in Congress saying that the military funding needing to keep flowing to Ukraine, it's only going to get that much more attention. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And what about the hiring process for federal workers? That's interesting. That is part of this Chance to Compete Act. Yeah, we've talked about the fact that obviously the federal government needs to attract more workers, have to try to get a younger workforce. And there was a boost for supporters of legislation in the House Oversight and Reform Committee last week, which passed the chance to compete legislation. This, as you know, is bipartisan legislation that seeks to simplify how agencies would look for job applicants. It would make lots of changes, including among them the use of experts in certain subjects to assess the skills of applicants. Among those changes is putting more emphasis basically on whether the person could actually do the federal job and less on education backgrounds. And it's hoped that that would help get a more diverse pool of applicants. The House is not the only place where this is taking place. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee passed a version of its legislation earlier this year. So it does seem like there is some progress in this area. All right. The final thing I wanted to ask you about is this CHIPS Act or the Competition with China Act. What are the prospects there, and where would this $50 billion they're talking about end up? Well, this is really interesting because this is kind of old-school Congress, right? You remember the days when uh, actually you'd have legislation passed by the House and Senate, and then you'd get a conference committee to work it out. And that is actually what's happening on this bill, which frankly has not happened on a lot of legislation here on Capitol Hill lately. But they're going to be looking at this so-called CHIPS Act, more than $50 billion, as you mentioned, for the production of U.S. semiconductor chips. Uh, The idea basically is trying to get U.S. facilities facilities to create more semiconductor chips so that the U.S. is not dependent on China and other countries overseas, including throughout Asia, and that 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 will ultimately help with some of these supply chain issues. There's a lot of interest in this from lawmakers, both from the broader sense of of reform and trying to get the U.S. to get caught up, basically, with the rest of the world on an area where the U.S. used to be the leader, but also more parochially, the lawmakers know that some of these semiconductor conductor facilities and various places where they may create them could go into various districts across the country, including in Virginia. So a lot of interest with this. They're going to try to be working this out. House Speaker Pelosi named 50 Democrats to this House and Senate Conference Committee. Now, there is an issue, uh, as always, with politics. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell last week said that the Democrats are going to have to make some major concessions on this legislation. The Republicans think that it gives too many government subsidies as they look to create some of these facilities. So we'll have to see how this goes. But this is one area as they work this out where there is bipartisan support that most lawmakers agree that the U.S. has to do more to step up to compete against China and other countries. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley. 
the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.